the history of cannabis. Welcome to the history of cannabis. In this unit, we'll take you from the early years of cannabis and hemp use in, America's, in the Americas, through the rapid social changes leading to the prohibition, to the 80 years of prohibition itself. We'll look at the social and cultural changes that ultimately led to the cannabis laws relaxing in most U.S. states and what the future might hold for the cannabis movement at home and internationally. Cannabis and hemp before prohibition. The cannabis plant is indigenous to the temperate parts of Asia, and it's thought to be among humanity's, humanity's earliest domesticated crops. Cannabis has been in constant use in China for at least 8,500 years and was introduced to Western Asia and Europe between 2000 and 1000 BCE. For much of history, cannabis has been primarily used for used as a source of fiber, while its use as an intoxicant has been limited. Prior to its worldwide prohibition in the earliest 20th century, cannabis was fundamentally important part of the global economy. For hundreds of years, hemp fiber was the number one choice for the production of rope and sailcloth, which were vital to the ship shipping industry prior to the Industrial Revolution. It's thought that hemp was first brought to South America by Spanish colonists in 1545, and that is, uh, and that it was first planted in North America in 1606. Within a few decades, it was in widespread production in many European-controlled territories. In fact, hemp was so integral to the early American colonies that in 1619, the Virginia Assembly passed legislation requiring all households to produce it. During that time, hemp was accepted as a form of currency in Virginia, Maryland, and, uh, and Pennsylvania. In the 18th century, George Washington cultivated hemp for many years at his plantation, Mount Vernon. According to Mount Vernon records, the fibers were used to repair fishing nets or spun into clothing. Other U.S. presidents known to have grown hemp prior to the 20th century include Thomas Jefferson, 1743 to 1826, and James Madison, 1751 to 1836. Other notable U.S. politicians who farmed hemp include, included Benjamin Franklin, 1706 to 1790, and Henry Clay, 1777 to 1852. Henry Clay Ashland Estate in Kentucky produced hemp as its primary crop, and Clay itself, himself advocated uh, viscerously uh, for protections of the U.S. hemp industry. Hemp plantations ran on slave labor. Prior to the Civil War, the colonies established by European in the, America, in, in the Americas depended largely on transatlantic slave trade. A vast labor force was needed to maintain the high agriculture output that made the colonies profitable. In the Kentucky's bluegrass region, hemp cultivation made the greatest use of slave labor of any crop. The colonies in which hemp was primarily produced prior to U.S. independence included Virginia and Maryland, with Kentucky, Illinois, and Missouri later becoming important hemp-producing states. These territories, save for Illinois, were all among the largest slaveholding lands in North America. 
All five of the U.S. politicians mentioned in the section above owned slaves and mostly relied on slave labor to grow hemp on their plantations. The Decline of Hemp By the mid-19th century, modern globalization had begun in earnest, and cheaper international sources of hemp and other natural flat fibers began to displace the domestic industry. Russia, which had exported hemp to the U.S. since the 1780s, supplied up to 300,000 pods, 5,333 U.S. tons in 1803. Russia and the neighboring Baltic states monopolized the global market for hemp until the mid-19th century. By this time, expansion into Asian, uh, into Asian and African territories was beginning to open vast new agricultural lands to be exploited. And with this development came an influx of alternative natural fibers like jute, silal, and manali hemp, which helped push the decline of the U.S. industry. However, domestic hemp production remained an important part of the U.S. economy until the Civil War. During the year, the southern states began to replace hemp with cotton, which could be more easily sold overseas. The post-war decade saw many former hemp producers switch to tobacco as a principal cash crop. The abolition of slavery in 1865 and the consequent disruption to the southern economy contributed further to the decline of hemp cultivation. As the reliable supply of legal slaves ceased, plantation owners began to rely on illegally acquired slaves, ex-slaves, convict labor, and indentured laborers from Europe and Asia. Increasingly, U.S. plantations were outcompeted by cheaper overseas sources of labor. The U.S. acquisition of the Philippines in 1898 led to massive imports of cheap Manala hemp, a fiber derived from a species of herb, uh, Musa textilis, which could be used for rope making and many other traditional applications for hemp itself. The U.S.-based hemp producers that remained active during this time were unable to complete, compete with the sustainability substantially lower labor costs in the Philippines. Hemp remained one of the world's most important agricultural commodities throughout the 19th century. However, the Industrial Revolution brought another major factor responsible for killing the industry. Commercial steamshipping, steamships, which which first arrived on the scene at the turn of the 19th century, had no need for sales made from the hemp cloth. In 1889, the state of Kentucky produced hemp valued at $468,000 on 23,468 acres of land. By 1909, just 6,800 acres of hemp were cultivated in Kentucky, an area that made up 76% of all U.S. hemp production. By the 1920s and 30s, the, available in, of cheap, the availability of cheap manufactured fibers such as rayon and nylon helped seal the fate of hemp. In 1930, the U.S. imported 1,457 tons of hemp. By, 1938, or by 1939, imports had dwindled to 
to just 678 tons. Although much has been made of the possible conspiracy to outlaw hemp involving Federal Bureau of Narcotics head Harry J. Anslinger, uh, the petrochemicals companies DuPont, which developed nylon, and newspaper uh, magnate uh, Randolph Hearst, the weight of evidence does not support this conclusion. Hemp was already well in decline in the U.S. by the start of the 20th century. Anslinger first began to target cannabis in 1930, at which point nylon uh, was several years away from being invented. And the rise of cannabis. Although hemp had now passed its heyday, different versions of cannabis were growing in popularity. However, it's important to note that intoxicating forms of cannabis were known to exist in the Americas long before the 19th century. In fact, the British and Portuguese authorities allowed cannabis use on plantations in the Jamaica and Brazil as it was thought to pacify slave laborers. In the U.S., slave, uh, in the US slaves may have used cannabis as an intoxicant too. And, you, uh, and use of intoxicating cannabis may not have been limited to slaves. In 1916, Virginia law required householders to grow both English and Indian hemp. And although Indian hemp was used for fiber, it was well known even at the time of also producing intoxicating resin. George Washington may also have used potent forms of cannabis. As letters uh, exist regarding the important uh, or the import and cultivation of Indian hemp. By the mid 19th century, cannabis was hugely popular, widely used uh, ingre- uh, widely used ingredient in medicines for adults, children, and even animals. Dozens of different tinctures, ointments, and solvents uh, containing cannabis could be purchased openly in public pharmacies. The popularity and ubiquity of these medicines grew until the ni- until 1906 when Congress passed the Pure Food and Drug Act, requiring labeling of any over-the-counter remedies that contain cannabis. Also during the 19th century, Hanish use, before, uh, use became fashionable in France and later to some extent in the United States. In fact, Kur- Turkish-style Hanish parlors began to pop up in various U- U.S. cities including New York, Philadelphia, and Boston. In the 1880s, it was estimated that New York alone had 500 of these establishments. In 1910, after the Mexican Revolution, a wave of immigration to the U.S. occurred. The Mexicans brought with them their own cultural love of cannabis, and perhaps for the first time, public opinion towards uh, and began public opinion toward it began to shift firmly towards outright disapproval and hostility. Industry, politics, racism collide. At this point in history, public opinion towards cannabis began to veer sharply to the negative. Despite this, certain groups remained in support of cannabis, most importantly, the medical community. Unfortunately, the pro-cannabis voice of medical and scientific professions was ignored, silenced, and even threatened by the reefer madness effort that would soon take root in the U.S. 
before spreading around the world. By the early 1900s, cannabis use had become firmly associated with Mexican immigrants who were already viewed with the mistrust and prejudice by the general American public. Alongside this, new forms of cultural expression were emerging from the African-American population, such as jazz music and cannabis complemented their creative styles perfectly. The association with Black and Mexican people was too much for the middle America to bear. Anti-drug campaigners began to focus on the coming marijuana menace and associated cannabis use with violent crimes such as rape and murder. Anti-cannabis attitudes intensify. In 1930, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, FBN, was established with Harry J. Anslinger at, at the reins. He would make it his personal mission to go after marijuana, mostly out of the racism, mostly out of racism, and as a means to raise stronger government funding for the FBN. Anslinger would re remain in his post until 1962, and would inflict uh, and would inflict untold damage on the lives of countless people during the decades in power. The tragic tale of jazz, jazz legend Billie Holiday is just one horrific example. While evidence does not support a, a conspiracy with DuPont over protectionism of nylon, Anslinger may still have conspired to exaggerate the dangers of cannabis with newspaperman Randolph Hearst, who published a near constant stream of anti-cannabis rhetoric during the 1930s and 40s. Anslinger had previously stated that associating cannabis with violent crime was an absurd fallacy. When prohibition of alcohol ended and his long-term career was threatened, his abrupt change of opinion was likely intended to help secure a new career path at the FBN. By 1931, 29 U.S. states had passed legislation to prohibit cannabis. In 1937, the final blow was dealt with the passing of the Marijuana Tax Act. The act effectively criminalized cannabis by, set, by setting restrictive high taxes on import, export, production, and sale of cannabis and hemp. The passing of the Marijuana Tax Act was, uh, was opposed by the American Medical Association, the largest association of physicians in the U.S., as the act imposed restrictions of cult on cultivation, research, and prescription of medical cannabis. In his book, Chasing the Scream, John, uh, Joanne Harry, or Harry uh, writes of Anslinger's strong-arm tactics. When the American Medical Association issued a report debunking some of his more overheated claims, he announced that any of his agents caught with a copy would be immediately fired. Hemp for victory. During World War II, natural fibers were still of great importance in manufacturing uh, cordage, parachutes, and other military equipment. Imports of Manala hemp from the Philippines had abruptly ended with the Japanese occupation of the island nation in 1942. Domestic production of hemp at this time was all but non-existent. Most 
mostly thanks to the ongoing decline in the industry. With the recent passing of the Marijuana Tax Act, while the act did not outright prohibit uh, prohibit cultivation of hemp, it placed its production under the control of the Treasury Department, requiring permission for the FBN later formed into the DEA to produce it and introduced taxes that rendered it even less profitable compared to other increasingly popular sources of fiber. In a desperate, desperate effort to make up for the sudden shortfall, the U.S. Department of Agriculture launched its Hemp for Victory campaign, distributing hemp seeds to farmers and issuing draft deferments to those willing to grow hemp. The campaign saw 68,000 metric tons of hemp fiber produced on 59,000 hectare acres in the USA in 1943, but it did little to solve the crisis of military shortages. After World War II, the combined factors of uncompetitiveness, high production costs, and labor requirements, and the effects of the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act ensured that hemp production effectively disappeared. The Prohibition Era By the start of the 1940s, anti-cannabis settlements for, sentiment was, form, uh, was firmly entrenched in the mainstream society. However, research into cannabis within the scientific community continued uh, it could, where it could, uh, and continued to find evidence of cannabis's medical properties. In 1940, organic chemist Roger Adams of the U University of Illinois isolated cannabinoids from the cannabis plant for the first time. He identified the new compounds cannabinol CBN and cannabidol, cannabidol CBD. By the turn of the 21st century, Diverse sections of society would begin to vocally question the mainstream narrative around cannabis. But before reaching that point, the American public and other countries would be subjected to years of uh, draconian regressive punishments for minor narcotics-related offenses. In 1952 and 56, respectively, the Boggs Act and the Narcotics Control Act implemented mandatory sentences for drug-related offenses, including cannabis. Possession of cannabis for first-time offenders carried a minimum sentence of 2 to 10 years, with a fine of up to $20,000. Then in 1968, the Federal Bureau of Narcotics merged with the Bureau of Dangerous Drugs, a division of the Food and Drug Administration to form a Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, BNDD. In May 1969, the Supreme Court ruled the Marijuana Tax Act of 1937 to be unconstitutional in the Leary v. Versus United States, the Leary in question uh, being none other than the famed activist and scientist Timothy Leary. Congress repeal repealed the act in 1970. With the passing of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act and Controlled Substance Act, the war on drugs intensifies. As part of the Controlled Substance Act, Nixon appointed the Bipartisan Schaefer Commission to assess the existing cannabis laws with the expectation that recommendations for stiff penalties would be result. However, Nixon was impatient to begin his long-planned long campaign against cannabis, 
even before the Schaefer Commission returned its results. At a press conference in June 1971, Nixon famously announced a war on drugs. The world's media quickly popularized the term, although Nixon had actually first coined the phrase two years earlier, shortly after being inaugurated. In 1972, after two years of study, the Schaefer Commission concluded that cannabis did not cause physical addiction and had not been proven harmful. It, uh, it recommended that personal use of cannabis should be decriminal, <clears throat> decriminalized. Nixon rejected the recommendation and mandated that cannabis, cannabis be classified as a Schedule I, the, the strictest category in the new Controlled Substance Act, reserved for substances that pose a high risk of addiction and are deemed to have no medical value. To help enforce this ruling, in 1973, the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drug Acts, Dangerous Drugs, uh, emerged with the Office of Drug Abuse Law Enforcement to form the Notorious Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA. Why did Nixon ignore science and put cannabis as a Schedule I drug? According to the John L. L. Richmond, Nixon domestic, Nixon's domestic policy adv advisor, the war on drugs was designed to control Nixon's political enemies. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. There's your answers, folks. A swelling wave of dissent. Of dissent. A note of dissent against the mainstream narrative persisted throughout the de uh, decades of prohibition in the 1960s and 70s. These dissenting voices began to rise uh, in volume and clarity and to organize new, strengthening forms of political resistance. The decades since then have shown a general trend for increasing public tolerance and support for cannabis. Once a little questioned mainstream narrative, anti-cannabis rhetoric has increasingly been shown to be the uh, shown to be the preser preserve uh, of certain hyper conservative regressive elements of society. Unfortunately, those elements of so society have traditionally enjoyed disproportionate amounts of power, so their influence is hard to shake. Of course, the battle is still not over, but there are increasing signs that proponents of the cannabis legalization are winning once and for all. The explosion of hippie culture in the late 1960s and 70s, the horrors of the Vietnam War, and increasingly dubious anti-drug rhetoric all contributed to the rise of the cannabis counterculture. By this time, new, highly psychoactive varieties of cannabis 
were being imported from Southeast Asia, and a vast crowd of peace-loving youths was eager to embrace them. Of course, 1970 also saw the repeal of the Marijuana Tax Act and the implementation of the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act and the Controlled Substance Acts. By this time, it was increasingly uh, acknowledged that severe mandatory minimum sentences during the 1950s had failed to qual the, failed to qual the rise of can, cannabis culture. Thus, the new acts eliminated most mandatory minimum sentences except in serious limited cases. However, mandatory minimum sentences would come back with a vengeance just 16 years later with new laws implemented by the uh, rapidly anti-cannabis President Reagan. 1970 also saw the creation of the National Organization for the Repeal of Marijuana Laws Act, or NORML, N-O-R-M-L. This lobby group has campaigned tirelessly uh, ever since in support of medicinal and adult cannabis use of cannabis and has won over countless hearts and minds to the movement. Although Nixon rejected and recommend the recommendations of the Schaefer Commission, 11 states decriminalized cannabis and many others reduced penalties for cannabis during the 1970s. Ford and Carter years bring a brief lull. Gerald Ford succeeded Nixon as president in 1974, with a term marked by somewhat softer stance towards cannabis Ford advocated for harm reduction policies over the harsh punitive measures favored by his predecessor, and he considered drug uh, users victims rather than criminals. However, he made no positive legislation changes and would later adopt a harder line against cannabis. In 1977, Democrat Jimmy Carter was inaugurated as president and publicly stated support for the decriminalization of cannabis and lighter penalties in an address to the Congress uh, that year. However, the conservative-dominated legislature, influenced by anti-cannabis lobbyists, uh, ignored his recommendations. In 1978, the Carter administration established the Compassionate uh, Investigational New Drug Program, providing uh, providing cannabis-produced by the University of Mississippi to a small number of patients. The conservative backlash. Despite the astonishing progress made in the 1970s, the conservative rights war on drugs uh, did not falter. In fact, it it, it intensified in response over the following two decades. In 1981, Ronald Reagan was inaugurated as president bringing with him a long history of virtual, uh, virulently anti-cannabis sentiment. In fact, he was among the right-wing lobbyists pushing Congress to ignore Carter's early, earlier support of de- for decriminalization. During his election campaign, Reagan stated that cannabis was probably the most dangerous drug in the United States. In the first years of his term, Reagan oversaw a massive expansion of the operations of the Domestic Cannabis Eradication and Suppression Program, a DEA program begun in 1979. By 1985, the
the number of states in which the program was active had increased for, from seven to all 50. In 1986, Reagan's executive order 12564 authorized routine drug testings for all federal employees. The same year, Reagan signed the first Anti-Drug Abuse Act, establishing a new set of mandatory minimum sentences for drug-related offenses. Under the Anti-Drug Abuse Act, penalties for cannabis were as strict as those for heroin. The act also established the three strikes policy implemented for life sentences for repeat offenders and the death penalty for high-level drug distributors. In 1988, a second Anti-Drug Abuse Act tightened penalties even more and established further, further sanctions on drug users, such as denying access to federal benefits for one year post-conviction and mandating drug treatment programs. Currently in contravention of the International Single Convention of Narcotics Drugs, 1961, as of early 2019, the U.S. federal government has yet to fully legalize cannabis. But in 2018, finally legisl uh, legislated to permit the production and sale of hemp, uh, completely removing it from the controlled substance list. The next few years are bound to see more legislative change which may include rescheduling of cannabis at the international level and the possibility for nations to legalize cannabis without contravening international law. In 1989, George H.W. Bush became U.S. president and infamously redeclared a war on drugs. During his first national televised address, the same year he implemented Operation Green Merchant a program targeting vendors of grow equipment. In 1992, the Bush administration closed the Compassionate Investigational New Drug Program to new patients uh, ostensibly in response to research indicating that cannabis was medicinally ineffective. The trend toward decriminalization. In 1993, Democrat Bill Clinton was inaugurated as president. Clinton had advocated for treatment over punishment for drug users in 1992 election campaign, but in fact escalated the drug, uh, the drug war and did little to advance the cause of cannabis during his two terms in office. However, the war on drugs had begun to lose support across the board at this point, and the U.S. states began to take matters into their own hands and exercise their right to direct democracy. In 1996, Californian activists successfully petitioned to include Proposition 215, the Compassionate Use Act, on the ballot. The voters of Cal California passed the initiative with a 55.6% in favor. Slowly but surely, other states began to follow suit, and by 2014, 23 states plus the District of Columbus had or District of Columbia had passed medical cannabis legislation. While medical cannabis, while medical use of cannabis does not necessarily uh, contrive, uh, con contravene uh, international law, 
its, its distribution within the U.S. still contravenes various national laws. The federal government had initially responded to the opening of cannabis dispensaries with police raids, closures, and arrests, a situation that reached its peak during the presidency of Barack Obama until the Cole Memo in 2013, which basically protected those operating under state cannabis laws. In 2014, the states challenged federal laws yet again as Colorado became the first to permit adult-use cannabis sales. By January 2019, cannabis was legal for adult use in 10 states plus the District of Columbia. Cannabis was legally accessible in some form, decriminalized, medicinal, and or adult use in 33 states. Internationally, two nations, Uruguay and Canada, have formally legalized adult use of cannabis. Although they are 